So if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and today um, we're covering a story that's been told that you know. Lots of stories, like the song you just heard. Thank you guys for that song. But how do you get through all of that in 30 minutes? <laughs> so we're going to take what's called a survey look, a broad view, and many times there's uh, a desire to go really deep into the details of something, and there's a place for that. But we're going to go over the surface a little bit today with Luke chapter 8 and go deeper in a different way. We're going to ask the question, why are all these stories put together in Luke chapter 8? Because Luke and Matthew and Mark pretty much have all the same stories, but they're not placed in this way that Luke has placed them. And so we, asked, we have to ask the question, where are we in Luke's presentation? What's been going on? And you can compare that with Matthew chapters 12 through 15, or Mark chapters, starting in verse 31 of chapter 3, all the way through Mark chapter 5. You see all of these stories all over. But in Luke, they're all right here. And why? What is Luke trying to say? And so, in Luke's story, Jesus had been in the cities of Galilee, and then he went over by the Sea of Galilee, and he'd also been in the countryside, he'd been in the fields, he'd been on the mountainside, he'd also been in the synagogues, and as he's doing all this, he's generating two groups of people, and I think as we go through Luke chapter 8, you'll see that. There's two groups of people, those who listened to him and those who heard him but didn't listen. And so Luke is painting a particular picture for Theophilus. Remember the beginning of Luke? That's why he's writing this, oh, Theophilus. And even in chapter 6, verse 27, which we covered a couple weeks ago, it was said, but I say to you who hear, Luke has been working up to this point and comes to a special place in chapter 8 where he's leading us to consider something because in Luke chapter 9, there's a change that happens. And Ken will help us with that next week. But here now in chapter 8, is proof to Theophilus that the power of God's word was witnessed to by the people in Galilee. There were actual people that were there that witnessed Jesus and listened and heard. And while he's telling us about this, it's working up to the commissioning of the 12 apostles in chapter 9. And then Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem for the subsequent trek to Jerusalem at the end of chapter 9. So Lucas specifically set these things together, I believe. And he starts off by identifying some of those disciples for us. Just a real small passage of the whole chapter. Our first part, Luke 8, 1 through 3. And he identifies some disciples. Now, Jesus' ministry was an inclusive ministry, which would be a big hit with our today's culture, right? You matter. 
And women mattered in Jesus' ministry. And so Jesus has an inclusive ministry. He's not just tolerating women. He's having women be part of his ministry. He's allowing them to do ministry among them. And Luke tells us that they actually ministered to Jesus and the other disciples, and not just the 12, but all the disciples. And we don't have a lot of detail, and we don't have a lot of time, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but who are these women? Where did they come from? Possibly from what we've already read in Luke in chapter 4, verses 40 through 41, in chapter 6, verse 17, and in chapter 19, we see some of these women that were possibly these followers because Jesus had ministered to them, and now they became part of his entourage. And so we, all we have is we have four names. This is the first mention of Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of Luke, and we find out a little bit more about her later, but nothing here. And then we have Johanna, which we know nothing more about, and then we have Huzza from the household of Herod, and we have Susanna. And we don't have many details about them, but we do know that they did ministry. They were disciples, and they ministered to other disciples, and they ministered to Jesus. And then Luke goes on, as he's using that to present to Theophilus, that here in Galilee, something significant was happening, and there were actual people. Here's the actual names. They're real people. You can trust that they know. They're witnesses. And then he goes on and starts to talk about what it is that they witness. And the first thing he says is he says this parable, which we all know is the parable of the sower. But Luke has a different emphasis on this parable. A little bit twist that Matthew and Mark don't have. When Luke talks about the parable, he says it's the parable of the sower who went out to sow his seed. Both Matthew and Mark say it was the sower who went out to sow. To sow what? Luke is emphasizing the seed. Possibly um, he's helping us to understand that there's an emphasis that he wants to get about because when we talk about the seed in the explanation of the passage, we find out that the seed is the word of God. And so in Mark, I believe Mark is emphasizing more about the farmer doing what he's supposed to do, and that we're supposed to go out and we're supposed to be like the farmer and we're supposed to sow. You reap what you sow. We're supposed to do that. But here, Luke is more emphasizing the actual seed, the word. And the reason why I say that is because of what keeps following over and over again in the theme of Luke chapter 8. But first of all, let's just get past this because everybody wants to talk about this parable. We typically think of it as four types of people. Soil A, soil B, soil C, and soil D, right? But I think Luke has a different look on it. He's using this to show us that there's two types of people. And so let's just go through those and see if you can follow this. And it's not that one's right or wrong. It's that one has one emphasis and another has a different emphasis. But here we see that soil A is the people who don't listen. These are the ones that that they have no saving faith. They just don't listen to the word. The seed is never planted, never takes root, none of the other things that happen to the other seeds. And soil B are the people who give up listening to the word. 
They might listen for a little while until trials set in. Hardship comes along and life gets confusing and so you give up. You just quit listening. And then soil C is those who are hearing the word, but they're not really listening. They're hearing it, but they're so distracted by life that they, they never produce fruit. It never takes root. They're not really applying the things that they hear. So they're hearing, but they're not really listening. They never mature, and they really, they really never do anything with what they've heard. And go to church week after week after week after week after week, and there's no transformation. There's nothing that changes. There's no impact in their life from God's message to them. And that's all compared to soil D, which the parable is telling us these are the people who listen to and they hold on to the word. They grasp it. They don't let go of it. Nothing's going to take it away from them. These are the ones that persevere, and because of their perseverance in the word, with the word, to the word, they bear fruit. And as I think we see the theme starting to play out, what Luke is pushing here in his presentation of this parable is that there's two groups of people. Those who really listen to the word and those who don't. In fact, as the people would have been reading this in Luke's day, in the Old Testament times, in Bible times, they would have been familiar with an illusion that's being made here by Luke. In Isaiah 6, 8 through 10, it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people who keep on hearing, but do not understand. They keep on seeing, but do not perceive. That there's even going to be a group of people who are having a presentation of the power of the word of God, and they still don't get it. So Jesus at one point begins to teach in parables. Matthew tells us this very clearly. He began to teach in parables, and it's not that Jesus was deliberately impending conversion, but rather this was his reply to the people's response. It's not that the parables caused them to not be able to hear. It's the other way around. The fact that they weren't listening Choosing to not listen, he began to speak in parables. Does that make sense? And the reason I say that is because the parables that hide the truth from those who are not listening properly actually reveal truth to those who are. So when Jesus was telling a parable, he was presenting truth for somebody to grab onto. The question was, how are you going to respond to what Jesus presents. And so Luke is painting for us that it was being granted to those who listened rightly to have the secrets of the kingdom revealed to them. And you see that in the passage where Jesus takes his disciples aside and he explains to them. He says, to you it has been granted because you're the ones who are listening with the right attitude and you're trying to hold on to the word of God. You are the ones that has been granted to understand this. 
The secrets of the kingdom were revealed to them. So the question is, are you really listening? That's why I think Jesus ends the parable with, for him who has ears to hear. Paul makes allusion to this later on in Acts, in Acts 28. And he says, go to this people, verses 26 through 28, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their ears they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. See, when Jesus is presenting, when God's word is presenting, it's being presented for those who will hear. And that includes even the Gentiles getting back to Jesus' inclusive ministry. So Luke's emphasis on the parable of the sower might be a little different than what you're used to. But it makes sense as we move forward because immediately Luke drops into talking about the light of the lamp, which in Matthew and Mark are not connected with this parable. So why did he put it here? Well, in the beginning of Luke, Luke explained for Theophilus that Jesus is the lamp. Luke 2, 25, and verses 29 through 32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Lord, now you are letting your servant, this is Simeon being quoted, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have appeared that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people of Israel. See, Luke chapter 8 is connecting those things. It's connecting the people to the light and asking for the response. Jesus is the light that witnesses to the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. John chapter 1. And so Luke says here in verses 16 through 18, three statements about the lamp. And we don't have a lot of time to spend explaining those things. We'll do that another time. But it's interesting that Luke's placement is here because he's using what's known as doublets. We find this particularly in Luke that he will use phrases in his story presentation that he's also using somewhere else. And so in verse 16, we find it used in Luke chapter 11, verse 33. And in verse 17, we find it used in Luke chapter 12, verse 2. And verse 18, we see the same words used in Luke 19, verse 26. But there's one phrase that we have here in Luke chapter 8 that is not used in any of those passages. Can you guess what that phrase is? Can you see it right there? Verse 18, at the start of verse 18. Take care then how you hear. Luke is all about what are we doing with listening to the word of God 
and creating the theme here that has to do about be careful how you listen. Luke is concerned with our mode of listening. And all these sayings that he has here about the lamp simply heighten the importance of the way one should listen to the word. What is your attitude about it? What do you do with it? Listening from a mature disposition will cause greater maturity, while being immature or reckless in listening brings nothing. In other words, Luke is saying, and we see it in the other Gospels, that whoever hears profitably will profit even more from the word. But whoever listens carelessly to the word will seem to lose what he has already heard. Have you ever seen that in your life or somebody else's life? It seems like they've heard the word, but then as life goes on, just like the seeds, it's gone. So, there's this strange passage attached here that's in all the Gospels as well about Jesus' family trying to come to him as he's teaching these things. As he's talking about the lamp and he's talking about the seed, his family tries to get to him. And he says, aren't these people here listening, my brothers and sisters? And Jesus himself lays out for us the importance of who qualifies to be a disciple. It's not just the family connection or the family bond. And it's not that Jesus was rejecting his family, but he was broadening the scope of what it means to be a disciple to. The disciples are the ones who really listen to me, which can include his mother and brother, brothers. But the importance was even these people here have that relationship with me because they are ones who listen The ones who listen are my disciples. Not those first three soils, the fourth soil. So that's why I think Luke is creating for us two groups of people, a natural family versus a spiritual family. We have this little snippet there. But there's a transcendence beyond family ties that yet even when family members are hearers of the word, they can be disciples. What qualifies the person is verse 21. Those who hear and do my words. Literally, it reads, those who listen to me. A soil D. Now there's a switch. We've had these two parables, and now we have some stories about some amazing, miraculous events. Why did Luke do that? Well, he's beginning to develop a theme about being a witness. That's why it goes right into Luke chapter 9. But Luke gives several accounts of, he's been emphasizing through the way he presents these stories, he's been emphasizing the power of the word and saying how important the word is. It's the word and you listening to the word and you obeying the word and keeping the word. This is what makes you my disciple. And then now he comes to these actions, these events, to demonstrate that. And so Luke gives several accounts to uh, demonstrate the power of the word of God. And the question uh, that will be implied is, 
what will you do with what has been revealed to you? It becomes a personal crisis point to each and every one of us as we read the story, just as if Theophilus was reading the story. Luke's trying to get Theophilus to that point to say, what are you going to do with the word of God? (coughs) He's been saying that through these parables, and now that's kind of indirectly. Now he directly demonstrates through... um, these manifestations of Luke's, of Jesus' power. <laughs> so before, we were directed to keep and obey the word mostly by implication, the parables. Now there's a direct command experience that shows us the power of the word of God. So let's take a look at those things. First one, part four in your outline. Encountering natural calamity. A familiar story, calming of the storm. And we have an allusion here to the deity of Christ. It's going to be familiar not only with us, but familiar to the crowd that was around at that time, that God is the God who holds power over the water. A particular Old Testament teaching that the people that were part of this experience should have been aware of or probably um, had some inclination of that, that Yahweh's involvement in the history and the life of Israel included God's power over water. He is the God who exercises power over water. Particularly, Um, We're told that in Psalm 18, verse 16, Psalm 29, 3 and 4, Psalm 65, 7, Psalm 89, 9, Psalm 104, 6 through 7, Psalm 107, 23 through 32, Nahum 1, 4, Zechariah 3, 2. You're getting the point? They should have known this. It was all over the Old Testament teaching. Let me just read a couple of those for you. Psalm 107, 23 through 32. You should write this verse down. Psalm 107, 23 through 32. This is for you that want more on the passage. It says, some went down to the sea. And remember, this is Psalms. This is before Jesus was alive. It says, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, well, what works is that? Well, verse 25, he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths, and their courage was melted away in their evil plight. Sound familiar? Luke chapter 8. What happened in Psalms? They reeled and they staggered like drunken men and they were at their wit's end. They didn't know what else to do. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Starts to sound familiar. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. 
Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. This was part of the worship of the Old Testament system to read this psalm. And then we get to Luke 8, and what's happening? <laughs> the same thing that happened in the psalm. Then Hymn 1.4 says, He, talking about Yahweh, He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, and the bloom of, the, of Lebanon withers. They knew that God was the God who had power over the wind and the waves. So why did Jesus have to ask them, where is your faith? Did they not know the word of God? I think they knew it. And I think they had some faith to some extent because they actually did come to Jesus in the boat, right? So there was something there. But they didn't believe that his words were going to come true. We're going to get in this boat and we're going to go to the other side. So what Jesus does for them was he simply demonstrates his power by commanding the wind and the waves with just his word. No more implications, but now a direct command to the wind and the waves. Be quiet. Be still. And it happens. And the response of the people around is, who is this man? Wow. Their answer should have been, this is Yahweh. <laughs> this is God. But instead they were questioning but the answer is, he is the word of God demonstrated. That's who Luke is pointing out for Theophilus through this. He has the power over the created world, over the wind and the wave, just as the deliverer at the Red Sea. Just as the creator at the foundations of the earth. Natural calamity cannot keep us from having access to this same God. Luke then bumps it up a notch, goes to the next story. I mean, each one of these could be a sermon in itself, right? And usually they are. But I hope you're catching the theme here. So the next encounter is encountering supernatural influence. Compare this with Mark chapter 5. But just real quickly, there's a lot of details in there we don't have time for, but um, just real quickly, in the exorcism of the demons, we notice that there is acknowledgement even from the demons about who this is. They call him the son of the most high. But the question that we're asking now that we have this theme, will they listen to him? And yes, even the demons listen to him. There's this progressive manifestation of the power of Jesus that happens in this power over supernatural demonic influence. And you see that power demonstrated in, excuse me, in what happens to the pigs. But Jesus just speaks and it happens. These are direct commands. These are actual physical events that are giving us a picture, but the demands are direct. It's straight, it's his word that's doing this. And there's two responses accentuated right here in this chapter, maybe three, but there's two specific ones, the East Coast versus the West Coast. The East Coast, when they see the power of Jesus displayed through his word, it's, get out of here, we don't want anything to do, this is too much for us. 
And the West Coast, their response is, as he comes back across the lake, we see well, how are they responding to what Jesus is doing and his word and his ministry and the miracles that they saw. They're all over it. Come, we want to be with you. Come on, let's, let's do this more. But the, the Gadarenes, Gerasenes, say, get out of here. And you can check that out, verses 37, verses, verse 40. And don't tell my brother who lives in Connecticut that the East Coast is bad. But the West Coast had a better response. But when the power of Jesus experienced, there was a repeatedly obvious response of awe, almost fear. It was kind of a surprise or a shock that he was doing these things. And it's kind of like we didn't expect that to be what God had for us. It's supernatural. But what he's demonstrating here is that Jesus still has power over the supernatural. Not only the natural things, the calamities of evil, the, the natural forces, but also the supernatural forces. And so when supernatural influences come under the power of his word, what should we do? We should listen to his words. Moving on to the next one, next part, we encounter physical distress. Verses 40 through 48. And hopefully you see what's being displayed here is a gra gradual presentation of the lordship of Jesus Christ by Luke. He's trying to convince Theophilus that Jesus is Lord. You should listen to him. And so one of the things that was a big problem in their day and also in our day is just physical distress. With the hemorrhaged woman we have a move from sickness to healing. She had been distressed for years and nobody could figure it out. And we get to a story where the power of Jesus goes out and heals her. And this one isn't so much a word thing other than the fact that the woman was attesting that she believed he was who he said he was. She had been around enough and was specifically seeking him out to be healed. And Jesus makes a statement, at least Luke points it out, it's kind of odd that it wasn't Jesus' power that healed her, but her faith. And some, some, some people mistranslate that and think that whenever I have sickness, I'm going to be healed if I just have enough faith. That's not what Luke is saying, and I don't think that's what Jesus meant. I think what Jesus was doing is he was making there's a connection between faith and salvation. There's a connection between faith and deliverance. There's that correlation to faith that is made here by Jesus. It wasn't her faith that had the power. The power was with Jesus, not with her. So it's not saying that sickness is overcome by our faith because to believe that, that means that all sickness is because we don't have faith, which just isn't true. But what it's saying is that God has power over spirit. The God who has power over spiritual issues also can overcome physical issues. Her faith was in his power because he is Lord, and he, she had heard that and believed that. Otherwise, she wouldn't have come. It was hard for her to get to him. She had to fight to get to him just to be able to even touch the edge of his robe. And she had faith. 
This idea of power being in Jesus and not just our power getting us healed or saved or released or finding freedom based on our power. Luke has already been bringing that up again and again in Luke. In Luke 4.14 it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went out about him throughout the whole surrounding country. In Luke 5.17, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Luke 6.19, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and he healed them all. See, again, Luke is giving testimony that this has been happening, it's been happening, it's been happening. Where does this hemorrhage woman come from? Duh. (laughs) Didn't you just read? All these people were coming because they heard about this. They believed it. They put their faith in it. And then we have our last snippet for Luke chapter 8. Actually, it's kind of intermingled the story of Jairus' daughter and this encounter with death. But we've seen already that Jesus, by his word, has power over natural things, has power over supernatural things, and I believe by implication, his word has power over physical distress. And then now we see that his word has power over death. And so we get to the story of Jairus' daughter, and Jairus had come to ask Jesus to come heal his daughter, and in the process, another messenger comes and says, don't bother, she's already died. That gives us um, some recollections of what happened earlier in Luke with the raising of the, the boy of the widow of Nain, or going all the way back to the Old Testament to Elijah in 1 Kings, the raising of the son of the, the widow in Zarephath. But it's interesting that Luke points this out and puts this with all these other things because he's presenting his case. And he says that Jesus reached out and took her hand. Well, what's that all about? Well, again, that probably had some significance if you were a Jewish person living in the life of Israel and the history and experience of Israel and remembering God's word. Isaiah 41, 13 says this, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. And Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring you out of the prisons from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. But it's the Lord who takes you by the hand. And Jesus shows up at Jairus' house and says, hey, we're going to go try this anyways. And, and they were all there mourning and crying and going, this is the last case. And Jesus says, why are you crying? She's just sleeping. And what do they do? How do they respond to his words when he says that? They laugh at his words. They mock his words. What do you think you're doing? And he goes in there and he takes her by the hand and with his word he tells her to get up. And so the response to the word of power shows where we are putting our faith. The people outside that room were not putting their faith in the power of Jesus. The people outside that room were not willing to put their faith in the words of Jesus. 
So what is Luke saying? What's the conclusion we can come to? I think with the idea of Luke's presenting this to Theophilus, to get him to come to the point of realize that Jesus is the Savior and that you need to put your faith and trust in his word, I think we can easily say that the witness that we have here in Luke chapter 8 about Jesus and his ministry heightens the need for a personal response. It begins with being concerned about how one is listening to the word. Will you hear it and keep it? Or do you require a demonstration of the power of the word in order to place your faith in the Savior? What more do you need? You have the word of the God who has power over nature, supernatural, physical disease, and death. And you still want more. The relation of faith to salvation is that the response needs to be one of faith in the power of Jesus. Yes, even faith in the power of his word. Where is your faith? That's the question Jesus asked in Luke chapter 8, verse 25. Where's your faith? Is it in the same place as the group that holds on to the seat of his word? Or are you hearing without really listening? Are you needing something more to convince you that he is who he says he is? Are you needing something more to convince you that his word is sufficient for you? What will it take to rouse your faith? May God add his blessing to you through the hearing of his word today. Come back next week to see where Luke is taking us because we get another question asked. Who do you say that I am?